Welcome to The Classical Mind, a podcast about great books in the Western canon. I'm your host, Father Wesley Walker. Unfortunately, Dr. Jared Henderson is unable to join us today. His wife is in labor. So um, if you're listening to this, please uh, keep Dr. Henderson and his wife and their new child in your prayers and thoughts. We would really appreciate that. But we are excited to have on today Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, um, who has written a ton of books on reading well, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Booked, and the forthcoming Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. And her writing has appeared all over, including a monthly column at the Religious News Service. And she also hosted a really wonderful podcast called Jane and Jesus, which was awesome. So Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm doing great this beautiful day. And, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of to see you face to face. We've intersected in our social media circles for a while, and now we're having an actual conversation. So it's great. Yes, yes. And we do have a mutual background in that I was at Liberty University about the same time that you were. Um, and I even remember attending one of your lectures there. I think um, uh, it was uh, reading promiscuously. Oh, Dr. OK. Yes. Read widely and well. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So we're here today to talk about Daniel Defoe's novel, Robinson Crusoe. But um, but in order to do that, you have written this book, The Evangelical Imagination, and you have a section on it. Could you tell us just a little bit about the background of of Evangelical Imagination? Sure. So it, it's a book that's really uh, more about the social imaginary um, and what I identify as the evangelical social imaginary than you know, the imagination when we think of like Tolkien or Lewis or something like that. I try to make that connection. Um, but for anyone who's at all familiar with Charles Taylor, um, he is one of the thinkers who who's who has written a lot about social imaginaries, which are basically, as he defines them, um, kind of a, a precognitive or subconscious pool of, of images, stories, myths, legends, metaphors that we all share in a community. Um, and, and of course, there are multiple ones. If we did a Venn diagram, it would be very messy. But basically, the kinds of visions and ideas and concepts that we don't necessarily think about, but they're driving our communities. Um, you know, our maybe a, it might be a nation. It might be a... a a, a clan, um, or it could be a religious community like evangelicals, of which I am one. So drawing on Charles Taylor's um, idea and definition of the social imaginary, I identify um, what I see as a, a number of key metaphors, images, concepts um, that have driven evangelicalism since its beginnings in the 18th century. Um, and not coincidentally, my area of academic expertise is 18th and 19th century literature, particularly the novel. And so there's a there's just a very tight intertwining that a lot of people um, don't necessarily recognize between the rise and influence of evangelicalism in um, the Western world, especially England and America, and the rise of the novel um, and the modern self. And so um, my book kind of unpacks some of that. And um, I have one chapter on the image or idea of empire. And Robinson Crusoe is, is one of the key works I talk about in that chapter to illustrate how powerful that metaphor, that image has been, not just at that time historically, but even continues to this day within American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you maybe 
just define for our listeners how you use the term evangelical? I mean, that's such a pervasive term, and it can be used by so many different people in so many different ways. So what do we talk about when we talk about evangelicals? I'm so glad you asked, because (laughs) contrary to popular opinion, it's not a term that was invented in 2016. Um, (laughs) It certainly started to make a lot of headlines in 2016, because it is a term that is now associated with um, with partisan politics and presidential elections. And also, um, particularly a lot of people will say evangelical and they really are thinking of white evangelicals because that has become a, um, you know, a a survey category, a polling question. Uh, And so it's a word that's gotten very fraught and controversial in the past few years. However, as I mentioned earlier, The evangelical movement did begin in uh, the early 18th century. Um, Its foremost sort of pioneers were John and Charles Wesley um, and George Whitfield. They didn't call it that then, um, but that is what it came quickly to be called. And and it became part of both um, a movement within the established Church of England in the 18th and century and beyond, and also something that was carried over to America. And so there, there, you know, people can define it different ways. And I cite some of those, but really the main definition that most scholars agree on is um, the one offered by church historian David Bebbington. And it's called Bebbington's Quadrilateral. And he, you know, he looked, he writing in the, in the late 20th century, he studied, you know, the, the two centuries of evangelicalism, which of course transcended denominations and and geography and time. And he said that the four things that you can find in all of those expressions of evangelicalism are, you know, the centrality of the Bible um, as God's authority and word or biblicism, the centrality of of Christ's crucifixion uh, for our personal salvation or crucicentrism, the importance of individual conversion. Uh, again, remember that evangelicalism rose in a context w- in which there was a state church. And so if you were born, you were basically a member of the nation and a member of the church. Um, evangelicals said, no, 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 not so fast. Like you really, you have to have an individual personal conversion in order to be a Christian. So conversionism is the third. And then activism um, is the fourth, which in the 18th and especially the 19th centuries, that often meant um, missionary efforts. It also meant in England, particularly um, abolition of slavery, not so much in America, but that's a different story. Um, And even today we could look at many different expressions of evangelicalism and say, you know, there is an activist spirit behind it, whether it's the abortion issue or social justice uh, and race issues. Um, and, and many times evangelicals disagree about those issues, and, and but there's, there's still an activist spirit um, that defines evangelicals. And what's interesting is we do see almost all four of those things show up in Robinson Crusoe. Um, yes, so let's uh, maybe we could we could jump into the text a little bit. One of the things we kind of like to do at the beginning of our discussions is talk a little bit about our experience with the text. So um, what's your kind of background with Robinson Crusoe? Oh, I, I love that you asked that question. So I think the first time I read it was in grad school um, in the context of an 18th century literature class. I don't remember which one that was. Um, and um 
and and I, yeah, I, and it, so that it was that was my first experience. Again, I, I ended up studying and centering on the English novel, which really developed in the 18th century. So I've always treated Robinson Crusoe and approached it as uh, a precursor to the novel. Um, and those who have read it, uh, or you know, whether whether in whole or or part or or are familiar with it at all, will 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 recognize that it's kind of a rough, you know, piece. It's not, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not Jane Austen. It's not, you know, it's 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 not uh, Thomas Hardy. It's it's, and, and we can talk about that more later. But this, the novel really hadn't been invented yet. Um, Defoe was doing something new and different, but he wasn't doing it as consciously as later writers would. Um, but he laid the groundwork for what would become the form of the novel. So that's the first time that I that I read it. Um, you know, I've taught parts of it in different classes over the years. Um, I don't think I've ever taught the entire novel. And I actually, I do have a little, I do have a kind of interesting story about it my using it for the evangelical imagination. I was just thinking of this before we got on the air. I thought, well, maybe I'll share this story. Um, now, I and I, sh I need to go back to an earlier part of our conversation uh, and, and let everyone know I am an evangelical, right? right so, right, right, um, right. so, you know, I'm criticizing it out of a place of, of love and desire for us to be better. Um, but also, you know, not just that I'm an evangelical, but I'm a Christian. So I, I pray and I, I have supernatural experiences of the Lord in my life um, a lot. And so I was working on the evangelical imagination and I was out speaking somewhere. I don't remember where um, and out to dinner with some of the faculty that were hosting me for whatever lecture I was giving. And I was talking about the book in progress and it was actually another English faculty member who started talking with me about um, Robinson Crusoe. And I can't remember what what aspect of my work in progress we were talking about when she mentioned, oh, this would be a, a great book um, to include for whatever angle we were talking about. And she's actually in the acknowledgements because this idea came from her. So I'm getting ready to fly home. And, you know, as always, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm a professor, I, I'm pressed for time all, and I'm trying to make the most of all my time, got this book deadline. And all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've got this, this, like, I need to reread Robinson Crusoe. I need to work this into my book. And I'm somewhere on the other side of the country with time to kill. And I was going to my next airport, whatever my connecting flight was, it was a big one. And I said, Lord, let me find Robinson Crusoe in the airport bookstore. And I did. I did. It was, you know, it, I mean, they don't even carry that many classics. They, I, don't, I didn't even think they carried class. They always carry the crappy airport stuff mm -hmm, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it was a bigger store. I'm looking on the shelf. It was the only, it was like, there were not many classics. It was the only, it was there on the airport shelf. And I got, I, I dug into it for the rest of my trip home and started, you know, uh, yeah. That's so amazing. That's, that's my best Robinson Crusoe story. I'll never forget it. Well, there are no accidents. I do believe that very much. Yes. <laughs> well, except for, you know, yeah, well, I mean, I guess Crusoe's shipwreck. I guess we would say was not even an accident in that sense, right? True, 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 <laughs> so, true. Also, we know you weren't at the Milwaukee airport, though, because they have that wonderful used bookstore in the airport, which is 
my favorite oh, airport. It's oh, the I only place. I, it's the only airport I'll buy books at. Oh, I've never been. I didn't. I've never even heard of such a thing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's now, a huge used bookstore. Wow. Yeah. Yay, Milwaukee. I know. I know. Very well-read people up there in Wisconsin. Um. Well, great. So, um, so perhaps we could then jump in. I well, I do think it would be interesting to, to maybe talk about Defoe just a little bit. You you mentioned him some, and uh, he's he was quite a character. So. For those of you who don't know, he was a he was an English Presbyterian. He was a dissenter. So obviously there was the state church, the Anglican church, um, and it was uh, considered a little problematic to not participate in the in the rituals of the state church. Um, and so he kind of stood outside of the, the church and, and certainly aspects of his Protestantism really come through uh, in this particular novel. But um, he was a very prolific author. And like you say, he was a pioneer of the English novel. Um, I thought it was pretty funny before we were talking. I, I, I likened him to um, to George Santos a little bit because he 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 was born with the last name Foe and he added the duh the foe uh, in order to sound more aristocratic and would often lie and, and say he was from an aristocratic Flemish family. <laughs> um, and he did spend time in prison, both for uh, one for one for um, being a, a dissenter, but also he was in debtor's prison, I think, for a while. Hmm. Um so quite an interesting guy. I don't know if you have any more to say about him, but yeah, I just no. I found those things to be quite interesting. No, he he was he was very um interesting. He he also, I mean, he was a um and and you know, times were different then. Um so he was a satirist and a pamphleteer in a time when, you know, I mean, there were some very serious um religious um debates and and mm-hmm. uh you know, at that point, not wars, but they had just come out of that. Um, I mean, we think our times are polarized and I always try to remind myself of how bad it has been in the past and we're not quite there yet, but, (laughs) um, but he, yeah, his, uh, the, he wrote a satirical pamphlet. um, I can't remember the title, but basically saying the best way to deal with dissenters um, and calling, you know, calling satirically for their execution because he was mocking um, the, you know, the, the established church and the, and the government. And so that, that's one of the, uh, times that he spent, I think, six months in prison and was pilloried uh, a few times as well. Um, so he w- lived a kind of um, hard scrapple life, I guess. Um, but it's that kind of experience that he draws on, especially as a journalist um, in writing, not not just this work, um, but actually another, all, all of his novels. Um, and this isn't even my favorite one. My favorite one is Maul Flanders, mm. um, which if we have time, we can talk about that more. But um, yeah, so. And you get kind of an interesting, because at the very beginning of the novel, there is sort of a, a sense of tumultuousness. It's a, it's a big time of change. Mm. And Crusoe, I mean, he's a German, he's from a German family, but he lives in England. And there's this kind of rising middle right. class and all this. It, it, it was very interesting. And you can you can definitely sense that there's a lot of, kind of social change in which Defoe is writing, I think, and, and mm-hmm. grappling with. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit kind of to, to start our discussion proper on the book about apocalypse. Um, so in the beginning of the book, you talk about evangelicalism kind of being in a crisis and that that crisis is an apocalyptic moment. And when people think apocalypse, they often think of 
um, maybe like the day after tomorrow or um, or if you're maybe raised in an evangelical context, you think of left behind or something like that. Um, but that's not really what apocalypse means. It's not necessarily about the end times per se. It's it's an unveiling. It, it reveals something. So the crisis right now of evangelicalism reveals some of the hidden assumptions that people have carried with them. Some of those things that are in the social imaginary that maybe haven't been investigated or interrogated much. And so I think that you use Robinson Crusoe. I don't think you use the term apocalyptic for it, but it, it, it is functioning apocalyptically in that it reveals a certain propensity towards imperialism. So just to start out, how, how does the work do that? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I, and, and, and that's why this, this novel was so perfect to talk about not just imperialism and evangelicalism, but kind of the two together. Um, so, so Defoe, I mean, you mentioned he was a Presbyterian, and I think it's also helpful to just um, include that um, background into sort of the larger Puritan strain altogether, because Puritanism, um, for good and bad, and, uh, you know, there's a lot we, you know, a lot a, as a loaded term, but Purit the Puritan history is rich and important and significant, um, not only to British history, but to American history and to evangelical history. Um, and it, I mean, Puritanism forms one of the significant strains of evangelicalism. So Defoe is part of that strain. And so what we have in this, and again, a lot of people are familiar with Robinson Crusoe in the way that they're familiar with something like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like they may never have read it, but we kind of know the broad contours of the story or the pop culture versions of it. Um, if you pick up Robinson Crusoe and read it, and you've not read it before, you will probably be shocked at the naked theology and doctrine that's very Puritan, very like, you know, reading the Bible, having a conversion experience, being convicted of sin, and, you know, and, and seeing the need to repent. And it's often, at least in my experience, taught that way, understood that way, received that way. And so, when I picked this up after having not read it for or thought about it much for a number of years, um, you know, I knew that was in there and I was still sort of, sort of taken aback by it. Um, but I also had these new eyes to see not only the very um, devout and good Puritan theology in this work, but also the way that everything about American individualism yes. is there. Right. Which is, you know, we might think it's weird because, OK, America wasn't founded yet. The novel was published in 1719, set earlier. Um, it, you know, it was it hadn't happened yet. And it's it's a British novel. It's, you know, Crusoe is Eng English coming from Germany. Um, and and yet this novel is kind of like the American dream. <laughs> it's it's who Thoreau wishes he could be. It almost feels like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If his cabin weren't quite so close to civilization. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, so I got myself kind of down this path of your, of your, your, your what was your question again? Uh, About like, the apocalypse. And, yeah, and how yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. And so reading this novel with, with sort of an understanding of, of, of its connections to evangelical history and its connections to uh, so many American values and concepts and, you know, the American social imaginary, it's, very, it's, it's revealing 
of who we are and why we are this way and the good and the bad because because well i'm getting ahead of myself but there, when we just read the story of this man on an island like he's you know i mean we we, we even even that idea i should have put this in the book that idea of being deserted on a desert island is that the expression yeah uh, deserted on a, it's a re, it's a redundancy but on a you know alone on a de deserted island is a concept that we are I mean, we're, how many times we think about that? We're asked about that. What book would you have? Mm -hmm. What music would you have? I mean, this is embedded in our imagination for whatever reason. And one of them is Robinson Crusoe. But it, but it's because we are a culture um, with a social imaginary that that um, that values and is driven by ideas of rugged individualism, um, as well as you know repentance and conversion to faith. Yeah, I was thinking about it while I was reading it, you know, the the phrase no man is an island. Mm. And 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 you know, sometimes in theological circles we talk about, well, you can't just read the Bible by yourself, you know, you have to read it in community with the larger church. And uh Robinson Crusoe sort of says hold my beard to both of those things, you know. It's <laughs> like <laughs> But it is interesting. So I so I, maybe we could maybe we could focus in a little bit on the very beginning of the books. Um, he's raised in a in a sort of emerging middle class family, and his dad really encourages him to engage in a profession where he can basically make a good living, not too much. He doesn't want him to be too rich because then you have a lot of concerns and problems. But he doesn't want him to be too poor, and so the middle class, he says, is really the best place to be. Um, and Crusoe is he's unsatisfied with that. He has a kind of wanderlust. Um, so, so from the very beginning, he has that sort of um, that rugged individualism of, of not wanting to stay put of wanting to go out and make a name for yourself of wanting to kind of be your own man. He, mm -hmm. he, he won't just listen to his dad and get plugged into the family business. Yeah. I mean, there's just sort of that rebellious spirit too, but it, it's, and again, it, it just, um, predicts so many um, middle-class families today sending their kids off to college, you know, to major in something useful um, and hopefully not go into too much debt doing it so that they can at least pay the debt. I mean, it, it, it's the same. It, it's a story that's been told over the and over um, in all, for all these generations. And it's th that's part of the revelation, I think, is, is reading this. And it, it, it's so strange and so far away, yet it sounds so familiar. Um, and so this rebelliousness of of Crusoe is kind of the, his the origin story for this, you know, great adventure and calamity that he faces. It is interesting, though, because even even though I think um, there are moments and you point this out in the book where when when he does establish himself on the island on which he's stranded and he builds and he farms and he he does all these kind of great things and he he kind of thinks of himself as the emperor you know oh look at all of my lands and all my resources but mm -hmm. the the choice to leave to to go he does looking back seem to regret it um he likens himself a lot in those opening chapters to the prodigal son and to Jonah the prophet mm -hmm. um kind of running away from his family um he I, I guess he doesn't really speak in terms of running away from god necessarily though he is um, he's certainly rebelling in, in more ways than one at that point. So it is interesting that there is that reflectiveness, I guess, there on uh, checking that wanderlust a bit. Um, at the same time, I do think, I mean, you know, I, I was wondering if he didn't go on the trip and he did stay at home and do what his dad did, would he have had the conversion experience that he had? And I, I mean, we can't know, but I, I, 
I am inclined to think that this is what God kind of had to have him do in order to get a hold of him, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's an, that's an interesting and good question. And since we have the story we have, um, I will point out another, um, chapter that i that i have in the evangelical imagination an earlier one because this this connects to it well i'm glad you brought it up is um is testimony right this is part of our evangel my evangelical dna is that not only must we be converted as bebbington correctly identifies as a feature of evangelicalism but once we are converted um, there's this this whole culture, this whole idea of giving our testimony, which I think is great. It's fine. I'm I'm a, I'm a person who loves stories, whether they are true or fictional. And so, giving a testimony is really just giving, you know, telling our story, and that's wonderful. But there is an element in which we value uh, dramatic testimony so much that you know a few things can happen. And I talk about this in the book. Um, we can either feel um, insufficient or feel diminished if we don't have a dramatic testimony. Mm. Uh, we might feel like our testimony is less than when, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. But there is that that sense that people, you know, if our testimony is boring, that it's somehow inferior. Um, or, you know, if that is the case, then there is a temptation um, to embellish testimonies. And there have been people who've been caught doing that. Um, and so I look back, you know, I think I hadn't made this connection before, so thanks for helping me make it, but Robinson Crusoe offers one of these really dramatic <laughs> conversion stories, right? I mean, he had to go and get, um, you know, stranded on a desert island and live through these, you know, these these near-death experiences in order to have this moment of repentance and conversion. Um, so the before and after of his conversion narrative is very a very dramatic difference so maybe we could talk a little bit about this too uh, so kind of continuing the, the theme of his individualism and the conversion and 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 testimonial aspect because obviously so he he's on the island he has this experience he has the dream where the the man with the spear comes down from heaven and is basically threatening to kill him and this kind of scares him straight, I guess, real fire and brimstone uh, stuff. Um, and and so he dedicates himself. He, he, he begins reading scripture, observing Sabbath as best he can. Um, once Friday arrives, he does sort of see himself as an apostle, teacher, missionary to Friday. He's got to convert him. Um, you talk a little bit about this in the in the novel, but how... How was missions, or not in the novel, in your book, how does missions and imperialism kind of tie together rather uncomfortably, I think, at times in this book? Yeah, that I mean, that is one of the um, elements of of empire and imperialism that I draw out, and I and I mentioned it earlier. I mean, this activist spirit that is so um, in the DNA of evangelicalism did produce help produce the great you know missions movement um, and spread the gospel throughout the world, but that didn't happen solely out of an impetus of sharing the gospel and, and um, sending missionaries out in the world, because many of those missionaries and their efforts were tied to, um, you know, financial and economic projects. Um, and many people, you know, people who, um, who 
set out for foreign lands uh, explicitly to um, work for a company that was, you know, seeking profit would justify doing that because, well, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to bring Christianity to the world. I mean, a, you know, very famous and dark example of this in, in, a, in fiction, but also very close to what happened uh, to him in real life is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, um, you know, a couple of centuries later. So you, we really cannot extricate the Christian missions movement of the late 18th and throughout the 19th century um, from um, from just colonialism that was um, undertaken for purely financial gain. And uh, and so we see the same thing in, in the story of Robinson Crusoe because he, as it turns out, and this was something, again, you know, I'm someone who I feel like my own eyes have been open to things that they weren't in the past or, you know, I'm more aware of things. Uh, and so rereading this uh, to, to include in my book, I had not remembered or saw differently that um, that Crusoe, you know, he set us out in the beginning on several journeys, uh, ship journeys um, before the this this one that this shipwreck that constitutes most of the story, but he himself what had at some point early became a, a slave for a short time. He was captured and taken and enslaved. Um, and the way the story ends, sorry, spoiler alert, the fact that he, you know, he, you know, he does get rescued in return. And I don't think that's too much of a spoiler, but he ends life pretty wealthy and it's directly because of of the slave labor that he uses and, and oh and i skipped over the most important part this particular shipwreck that constitutes most of the story took place on a slave expedition um and so um so these are the things you know if you re if you're like me and i'm not assuming and you've read you read the story long long ago what you remember from it is oh the man on the island who you know he makes he rescues himself he he makes his way in this rugged individual spirit he has a conversion it's it's steeped in puritan theology he gets this companion his man friday we all that's even a phrase my man his mm -hmm. man friday and yet I, you, it's possible to remember all those things to have read it long ago and not see just how steeped it is in imperialism and and slaving other human beings. And as I point out, you you know, Crusoe calls Friday his man Friday, his servant Friday, but Friday is literally his slave. Right. When they first meet each other after Crusoe rescues him, when he's sort of introducing himself to him, he doesn't teach him his name. He teaches him to call him master, which I thought was a particular kind of really hard yeah. to swallow at that point. It's like, you're the only guy in this Island. Yeah. And of course, Friday is invaluable too, is, is the other part that kind of hurts. I mean, he's not just, he's not just a body. He actually actively contributes to the, to the life on the Island and becomes even kind of excels Crusoe himself in, much of the feeds like when they're when they're shooting he often remarks that friday is a better shot than he is um and stuff so he so yeah it's it's uh it's kind of a shame and also there's the earlier um when he's enslaved in um by the muslims at the beginning of the book he escapes with the with a boy who he mm -hmm. then turns around and sells into slavery um which is right, I, I had right. forgotten about that part but right. i thought that was 
pretty, right, right. pretty terrible. And this is to go back to your earlier excellent question about how this reading this novel now and these these days is apocalyptic. You know, again, I think it's because we go back and we read it and we can see things with different eyes that we just accepted before maybe and didn't see for their their horror when he, when he called friday his man we just said oh yeah his man friday that's nice um and and didn't really say no 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 he he's a, he's his slave and yes and he sold a, a, a boy into slavery and his wealth came from slaves um and and caruso himself doesn't even see any problem with this um and that's how powerful culture and that's how powerful a social imaginary is, is that it actually can blind us to things that takes a great deal of time or effort or, um, you know, unveiling for us to see. Mm. Do you think, um, and I don't actually know about Defoe's persuasion on some of these things. I mean, is he including these details to to drop hints for us about the kind of inconsistencies or are these even inconsistencies he wouldn't have picked up on? I mean, I, th I, I think the latter. I think I think he's he's very realistically and truthfully and authentically reflecting the world he knows mm -hmm. um, and sees and um, and because he's doing that and we're seeing it with, you know, eyes from much you know, from outside this time and place, uh, we can see what he couldn't. And that's uh, that. But that is I mean, that's why we read literature mm -hmm. like this. Right. Because because he could see with his eyes some of the things in his time and and, and communicate them. Um, and that allows us to see things about his time that he couldn't see. Uh, and so, hope, you know, hopefully the prophetic writers of our time are going to are writing things that, that sometimes that they can see, as you said, as you indicated, but they can't see at all. Uh, and this is why these books that it's so important not to, quote unquote, cancel these books um, when they offend us, because they're our, the very experience of being offended is apocalyptical that's the whole point we are things are being revealed to us that need to be revealed mm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then um well actually perhaps we could perhaps we could go to a different question but i think it's still within the same under the same umbrella of what we're what we're currently talking about and that is maybe maybe drill down a little bit on the on the relationship between uh, Robinson Crusoe and his father, um, because you know the father. He the father basically. My read of it is he says that the good life is one of sort of stability, quiet stability, and for Crusoe it's you know go out and make a name, and so he does. But he ends up on this island where he develops a life of quiet stability, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm wondering um, I'm wondering where this fits in terms of the evangelical imagination of what is the good life. Mm -hmm. Um, is it in the kind of quietness and the, and the structure and the stability, or is it in this? And, and having been raised evangelical, there's a sense in which I feel like those two poles are very much present in the evangelical life. I mean, on the one hand, there is this kind of conversionism or, uh, testimony that, that emphasizes the kind of big event, you know, I was doing this and I, and God knocked me off the horse. But on the other hand, I mean, I do think that, I mean, the Protestant work ethic, for example, I mean, we talk about that. And so both of those are present. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can help us maybe navigate those two 
pulls a little bit in the evangelical mind? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I don't know that I would characterize the life that crusade. I mean, in, in one way it is a stable life. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it, it's very hard work. He gets very sick. Uh, and then, as we said before, he becomes in his own, you know, a king in his own mind, you know, he creates this empire. And so in a way, I think he's, he, if he's fulfilling what his father desired for him, um, I mean, he really, he's become a, um, a very big fish in a very small pond, maybe <laughs> to use that metaphor, which is not exactly what the, I don't think his father's thought of as, as the quiet middle-class life. Um, and so maybe the, the, the other, some other elements of the evil, evangelical imagination that we can pull from is again we've already talked about just this sort of individualism there's an american dream version of that but there's also a just jesus and me version of that in evangelicalism right so so we experience our faith uh in a personal relationship with jesus in which church community and tradition are you know not important if they even exist, right? right. Um, I mean, this is, I think more of us, so many of us are seeing this now that it's almost become cliche, but that's because there's so much truth in it, that, that it's not just about Jesus and me. It's, there's much more. And even reading the Bible is not just a sole individual act. We do that in community, even if we don't realize that. You um, do kind of see that with him in Friday when they're, because um, he's reading the scriptures and he talks about it very positively that, that there is, he didn't really remember a ton about his religious instruction growing up, but that he was, he found reading the scriptures to be this really enlivening thing. And then when he's got Friday and he's teaching him the scriptures, I think at one point Friday asks him, I think it's uh, why didn't God just kill the devil? Hmm. If he's so powerful, why, why is he letting him run amok? And, um, and, and Crusoe has to like ask him again, cause he doesn't know the answer. So he wants to think about it for a minute. But that idea of like studying it in community draws things out that you would never have thought about or take for granted or whatever. Um, I thought that was funny. I mean, that those are some of the most interesting and powerful passages of the novel. I think is this is this this these conversations that Crusoe has with Friday because Friday does become converted, and that also becomes kind of part of the justification for slavery itself, right? Well, I enslaved this person, but. Um, but I converted him too as a result. And so, I mean, that that's just one small example in a whole ongoing conversation that we've been having in this country for um, a couple hundred years. So, um, and when we still need to keep having. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. We had a conversation with um, Anika Prather on Frederick Douglass a while back. And this kind of came up too, where the, the um, white slave owners in the South would, use that as the justification of, well, we're, we're teaching them uh, religion. But I always found it interesting that, that in those enslaved communities, they almost kind of intuitively knew that the warped version of Christianity they were being taught was not the actual Christianity, which is where a lot of the uh, great spirituals and things come out of the, the sort of double meanings kind of, uh, yes, affirming theological truths, but also this idea that uh, of, of liberation in a, in a positive way. I, I always find that to be very interesting. Um, so, so I guess even sometimes in spite of the, the messed up, um, 
motivations and methodologies that are employed, there's still a sense in which uh, the truth mm-hmm. rings clearer than than even the those who are warping it would would realize. Returning to the biblical images that are used in the book, because obviously there's the prodigal and there's Jonah. But I think another one that's interesting is is the garden and creation itself being the island and and therefore Crusoe in some ways being a kind of Adamic character. Mm. Um, he He works and tends the land and he's mastered the animals. Of course, there's that kind of imperial way he views it, but there is a sense in which I think that Defoe is playing off of biblical imagery there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I found that to be, I found that to be interesting, and I wasn't sure what to make of it, other than than that he, he's kind of the gospel story in in germ a little bit. I mean, he, there's a fall at the beginning, the the leaving, and then he's brought to the island where he is recreated, rehabilitated in a sense. Mm. Um, and I, I I did find that pattern to be an interesting one. No, I think that's that's very insightful because I, there are many parallels, I think, between the work that R- Crusoe does on this island, kind of a, it, it becomes a paradise, right? At first, it's a scary place, but actually he, you know, he not only builds one wonderful, suitable shelter, but then has another home. So it's like he has two two homes and um, and he plants and he raises animals and I think the most obvious um, dissimilarity, if we think of it that way, which certainly is warranted, is the the absence of a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he has no um, companion at, at all for for a while, and then when he um, when he finally gets one, it's it's Friday, um, who is you know not a female counterpart, and also as we've said, is a slave. So there is something, you know. Um, distorted and wrong about this Eden all the way through, I guess. Um, mm. And and I'm not sure that that uh, Defoe uh, is trying to say something or correct that or anything. It just, it, it is that. And I think, I think if we read it with those eyes to see that there's a distortion there, I think it's also something that, um, that we do see being played out some in some corners, even of the church today, where there's an overemphasis on masculinity or the importance of masculinity at, you know, at the expense of women. Um, you know, I don't need to say a lot more about that, but if you, you know, it, it certainly is going on. And I think Robinson Crusoe gives us kind of an early 18th century version of that. Yeah, I guess now that, yeah, I mean, I, I, the fact that there was no woman character there was was puzzling to me. But the only real woman in the story, well, there are two. There's his mother at the beginning who somewhat, um, I mean, she she kind of just wants him to stay at home and, and obey the father. But then there's the, the widow who takes care of his things while he's gone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is a shocking lack of, uh, that is interesting. The the only other biblical connection I made, uh, so and, I, and there are more, but but the three big ones is Job, the book of Job, which is something we've talked about on the podcast a lot. Actually, we've read um, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy and talked a lot about the the Job story, but about the idea of losing and gaining more in the end. He he basically says, and then I at the end he says, I realized uh, that uh, that the second ending of Job is better than the first. 
and uh and, th- and that's after he gets all his money and things delivered to mm-hmm. him so he he undergoes a kind of jobin experience i suppose uh, but again no wife <laughs> so very good well this has been a very fun conversation dr Pryor. we really really appreciate it um when is your book uh coming out i think it's in august right Right. The release date is August 8th. Um, and I'm not sure when this episode is dropping, but we're Should doing be June 6th. OK, we are doing a uh, I'm doing a summer um, book club that be- begins at the end of June. So your listeners will still have time to sign up for that if they want to um, pre-order it and get an advanced copy and um, have a like a, we'll meet four times over zoom to discuss the book uh, it'll be recorded for anybody who can't make the the live meetings but um, a little you know if some, someone wants to get ahead and and talk with me about the book um, I would welcome that oh excellent excellent we do a newsletter uh, every other week as well and so I'll be sure that we uh, we put the link into the book oh, club. Great. yeah that's kind of an yeah. ongoing thing yeah that'll be awesome well, awesome. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, for tuning in and and reading along with us. Our next book, which will the episode will come out in July for, is The Brothers Karmasov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. So that will be a fun conversation. I know Jared is very excited about that one, given that he recently, within the past year, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. So uh, Dostoevsky is kind of a big, big name there. So anyway, so we're very excited for that. Dr. Pryor, thank you again. And listeners, keep on reading. Thank you. <laughs>